Chapter Eleven, Part One of A Prince of Good Fellows. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. A Prince of Good Fellows by Robert Barr. Chapter Eleven, Part One. The King Weds. Even a stranger in Stirling must have been impressed by the fact that something unusual was afoot, not to be explained by the mere preparation for ushering in the new year. Inquiry soon solved the problem of the decorations and the rejoicings. James V, the most popular king Scotland had possessed since the days of Bruce, was about to be married, and most of his subjects thought it high time for he had reached the mature age of twenty-six, and monarchs are expected to take a mate somewhat earlier than other folk. As the king with a splendid retinue was to depart shortly after the new year on a journey to France to claim his bride, the capital city flung its bunting to the breeze, and the inhabitants thereof pledged each other and the king in bumpers of exhilarating beverages. Indeed, all Scotland was following the example set to it by Stirling, for the marriage was extremely well-liked throughout the land. The king's father had linked himself to an English princess, and the Scottish people thought little of her. The precipitate marriage of this queen, only a few months after her husband's death, still further lowered her in public estimation. Scotland professed slight regard for Margaret of England, and was glad when her son refused the offer of his uncle, Henry VIII, to provide him with a wife. Indeed, James was at that moment the most sought-after young man in the world, so far as matrimony was concerned. The Pope, who now addressed him as defender of the faith, had a favorite candidate for his hand. Henry VIII was anxious that he should have all England to pick and choose from, the emperor charles v wished him to marry princess mary of portugal francis i of france was eager to supply him with a well-dowered bride never before had any youth such an embarrassment of choice but james himself decided that he would go a wooing to france and his subjects universally applauded his preference James' elderly relative, John, Duke of Albany, had married the heiress of de la Tour d'Auvergne, and the young king resolved to follow his example. Apart from this, James, in a manner, was pledged from the time he was three years of age, for Albany, when regent of Scotland, had promised France that the young ruler should seek his consort in that country so there had now been chosen for him mary daughter of the duc de vendome who was reported beautiful and what was more to the purpose in a thrifty nation was known to be wealthy this courting by all europe might have turned the head of a less sensible young man than james but he well knew the reason that so many distinguished persons desired his alliance Henry the Eighth was at loggerheads with France. The Emperor Charles and Francis I were engaged in one of their customary aimless wars, the advantage, as usual, inclining rather to the Emperor's side. Scotland was at peace with itself and with all the world. 
the scots were excellent fighters in whatever part of the world they encountered an enemy and the strong fleet which james the fourth had builded was augmented by his son and might prove a powerful factor in european politics france and scotland had long been traditional friends and so this new mating aroused enthusiasm in both countries thus stirling put on a gay attire and her citizens went about with smiles on their faces all except one and that one was james himself who became more and more gloomy as the time for his departure approached he had no desire to take upon himself the trammels of the matrimonial estate and although his uncle the strenuous henry was ultimately to set an example before the world of the ease with which the restrictions of marriage were to be shuffled off yet at this time henry himself was merely an amateur at the business engaged in getting rid of catherine of aragon a task which he had not yet succeeded in accomplishing james had postponed and repostponed the fateful journey but at last he saw it must be taken or a friendly country one of the proudest on earth would be deliberately insulted in the face of the world not only this but his own subjects were getting restive and he knew as well as they that a disputed succession in the event of his early death might lead to civil war so making the best of the hard bargain which is imposed on princes where what should be the most endearing ties of human affection are concerned james set his face resolutely towards the south and attended by a brilliant escort sailed for france after a stormy voyage for the month was january the royal party landed in france and was met by a company of nobles only less splendid than itself in that the king was one of the visitors for francis had remained at Loches to welcome his brother's sovereign at that great and sinister stronghold where the court of france for the moment held its seat both time and weather seemed unpropitious for joyous occasion news arrived at Loch that the french army had suffered defeat in its invasion of the duke of savoy's territory and these tidings exercised a depressing influence on the welcoming delegation as the united escorts of france and scotland set out on their journey to loch a flurry of damp snow filled the air raw from off the channel and the road proved well-nigh impassable through depth of mud the discontented countenance of the king who was wont to be the life of any party of which he was a member lowered the spirits of his scottish followers to the level of those saddened by military defeat and the horsemen made their way through the quagmires of northern france more like a slow funeral procession than wedding guests at the castle where they halted at the end of the first day's journey the king speedily retired to the apartment assigned to him without a word of cheer even to the most intimate of his comrades the travellers had accomplished only about twelve leagues from the sea-coast on their first day's journey and darkness had set in before the horsemen clattered through the narrow streets of a little town and came to the frowning gates of a great castle whose huge tower in the glare of numerous torches loomed out white against the wintry sky the chief room of the suite reserved for the king was the only cheerful object his majesty had seen that day 
a roaring bonfire of bulky logs shed a flickering radiance on the tapestry that hung along the wall almost giving animation to the knight's picture thereon sternly battling against foes in anger or merrily joisting with friends for pleasure at some forgotten tournament the king probably actuated by the military instincts of his race urging him to get his bearings even though he was in the care of a friendly country strode to one of the windows and looked out dark as was the night and cloudy the sky the landscape was nevertheless etched in tolerable distinctness by the snow that had fallen and he saw far beneath him the depths of a profound valley and what appeared to be a town much lower than the one through which he had just ridden the stronghold appeared to stand on a platform of rock which was at least impregnable from this side james turned from the wintry scene outside to the more alluring prospect within the apartment a stout oaken table in the centre of the room was weighted with a sumptuous repast and the king with the stalwart appetite of youth and health augmented by a tiresome journey in keen air forthwith fell to and did ample justice to the providing of his unknown host the choicest vintages of france did something to dispel that depression which had settled down upon him and the outside glow of the great fire supplemented the inward ardour of good wine the king drew up his cushioned chair to the blaze and while his attendant speedily cleared the board a delicious drowsiness stole over him he was partially aroused from this by the entrance of his poetical friend and confidant sir david lindsay your majesty said the rimster the constable of these towers craves permission to pay his respects to you extending a welcome on behalf of his master the king of france bring him in davy cried james for in truth he has already extended the most cordial of welcomes and i desire to thank him for my reception shortly after sir david lindsay ushered into the room a young man of about the same age as the king dressed in that superb and picturesque costume which denoted a high noble of france and which added the lustre of fine raiment to the distinguished court of francis i the king greeted his visitor with that affability which invariably drew even the most surly toward him without relaxing the dignity which is supposed to be the heritage of a monarch i'm delighted to think said the newcomer that the king of scotland has honoured my house by making it his first halting-place in that realm which has ever been the friend of his country sir replied james the obligation rests entirely upon me after a stormy voyage and an inclement land journey the hospitality of your board is one of the most grateful encounters i have ever met with i plead an ignorance of geography which is deplorable and cannot in the least guess where i am beyond the fact that the boundaries of france encompass me i shall not pretend said the young man that my house is unworthy even of the distinguished guest which it now holds your majesty stands within historic walls for in an adjoining apartment was born william the founder of the great race of english kings scotchmen have defended this castle and scotchmen have assaulted it so its very stones are linked with the fortunes of your country brave henry v of england captured it and france took it from his successor 
my own family like the scotch have both stood its guard and have been the foremost through a breach to sack it i am but now employed in repairing the ravages of recent turmoil here the king interrupted him as if to mend the reputation of ignorance he had bestowed upon himself i take it then that i speak to one of the renowned name of talbot and that this fortress is no other than the castle of falaise and the king impetuously extended his hand to him we both come of a stormy line talbot indeed we are even more intimately associated than you have hinted for one of your name had the temerity to invade scotland itself in the interest of edward balliol yes by the rood and successfully too ah your majesty it does not become the pride of our house to refer to richard talbot for three years later the scots took him prisoner and he retired defeated from your country indeed replied the king gaily if my memory serves me truly we valued your valiant ancestor so highly that we made the king of england pay two thousand marks for him we scots are a frugal people we weigh many of the blessings of life against good hard coin and by saint andrew of scotland talbot i hold myself to-day no better than the rest for speaking as young man to young man i think it unworthy of either king or peasant to take a woman to his bosom for aught save love of her in that i cordially agree with your majesty said talbot with a fervour that made the king glance at him with even more of sympathy than he had already exhibited a wave of emotion seemed to overwhelm the sensitive james and submerge for the moment all discretion he appeared to forget that he spoke to a stranger and one foreign to him yet james rarely mistook his man and in this case his intuition was not at fault to lay bare the secrets of his heart to one unknown to him shortly before was an experiment of risk but as he had said he spoke as young man to young man and healthy youth is rarely cynical no matter to what country it belongs the heart knows nothing of nationality and a true man is a true man wherever he hails from james sprang to his feet and paced the long room in an excess of excitement a cloud on his brow hands clenching and unclenching as he walked equally with the lowest in his realm he felt the need of a compassionate confidant at last the words poured forth from him in an ecstasy of confession talbot he cried i'm on a journey that shames my very manhood i have lived my life as others of my age and whatever of contrition i may feel that rests between my maker and myself i am as he formed me and if i was made imperfect i may be to blame that i strove so little to overcome my deficiency but by god i say it here i never bought another nor sold myself now on the contrary i go to the loud market-place now i approach a woman i have never seen and who has never seen me to pledge our lives together the consideration for this union set down on parchment and a stipulated sum paid over in lands and gold the king stopped suddenly in his perambulation raised his hands and said impressively i tell you friend and host i'm no better than my fellows and worse than many of them but when the priest mutters the words that bind 
I say the man should have no thought in his mind, but of the woman who stands beside him, and she no thought in hers, but of the man in whose hand she places her own. Then why go on with this quest? cried young Talbot with an impetuosity equal to that of his guest. Why go on? How can I stop? The fate of kingdoms depends on my action. My honor is at stake. My pledged word is given. How can I withdraw? Your majesty need not withdraw. My master Francis is the very prince of lovers, and every word you have uttered will awake an echo in his own heart. Although he is our senior by twenty years, if I may venture to offer humbly such advice as occurs to me, you should tell him that you have come to France not to be chosen for, but to choose. France is the flower-garden of the human race. Here bloom the fairest lilies of womanhood, fit to grace the proudest throne in Christendom. Choice is the prerogative of kings. Indeed, Talbot, it is not, said the king dolefully. It should be so, and can be so, where a monarch boldly demands the right exercised unquestioned by the meanest mind. Whom shall you offend by stoutly claiming your right? Not France, for you will wed one of her daughters, not the king, for he is anxious to bestow upon you the lady you may prefer. Whom then? Merely the Duke of Vendôme, whose vaulting ambition it is to place a crown upon the head of his daughter, though its weight may crush her. The king looked fixedly at the perturbed young man, and a faint smile chased away the sternness of his countenance. "'I have never known an instance,' he said slowly, "'where the burden of a crown was urged as an objection, even by the most romantic of women.' It would be so urged by Mary of Vendôme, were she allowed to give utterance to her wishes. You know her, then? I am proud to claim her as a friend, and to assert she is the very pearl of France. Ah, you interest me. You hint, then, that I come a bootless wooer? That is turning the tables, indeed. And now you rouse an emulation which heretofore was absent in me. You think I cannot win and wear this jewel of the realm? That you may wear it, there is no doubt. That you may win it is another matter. Mary will place her listless hand in yours, knowing thus she pleases the king and her father. But it is rumored her affections are fixed upon another. Sir, you stir me up to competition. Now we enter the lists. You bring the keen incentive of rivalry into play. Such, your majesty, was far from my intention. I spoke as a friend of the lady. She has no more choice in this bargain than you deplored the lack of a moment since. The former gloom again overspread the king's face. There is the devil of it, he cried impatiently. If I could meet her on even terms, plain man and woman, then, if I loved her, I would win her, were all the nobles of France in the scales against me. But I come to her chained, a jingling captive, and she approaches me alike in thrall. It is a cursed fate, and I chaff at the clanking links, though they hold me nevertheless. 
and all my life I can never be sure of her, the chiming metal ever between us. I come in pomp and display, as public as the street I walk on, and the union is as brazen as a slave market, despite cathedral bells and archbishop's blessing. Ah, well, there is nothing gained by granting. Do you ride to Lochs with me? I follow your majesty a day behind, but hope to overtake you before you are well past tours. I am glad of it. Good night. I see you stand, my friend, and before this comes to a climax, we may have need to consult together. Good night. Good night. Next morning, early, the itinerants were on horseback again, facing southward. The day was wild and stormy, and so was the next that followed it. But after leaving Tours they seemed to have entered an enchanted land, for the clouds were dispersed and the warm sun came forth, endowing the travellers with a genial climate, like late springtime in Scotland. As they approached Lochs, even the king was amazed by the striking sight of the castle, a place formidable in its strength and in extent resembling a small city. The gay and gallant Francis received his fellow monarch with a cordiality that left no doubt of its genuine character. The French king had the geniality to meet James in the courtyard itself. He embraced him at the very gates as soon as James had dismounted from his horse. Notwithstanding his twenty years of seniority, Francis seemed as young as the Scottish king. By Saint Denis, James, he cried, you are a visitor of good omen, for you have brought fine weather with you and the breath of spring. All this winter we have endured the climate of Hades itself without its warmth. The two rulers stood together in the courtyard, entirely alone for no man dare frequent their immediate neighborhood. But in a circle some distance removed from their center, the Scotch and the French fraternized together, a preeminent assemblage numbering a thousand or more, and from the balconies beautiful ladies looked down on the inspiring scene. The gates were still open, and the drawbridge down, when a horseman came clattering over the causeway, and heedless of the distinguished audience which he scattered to right and left amid curses on his clumsiness drew up his foaming horse in the very presence of royalty itself francis cried out angrily at this interruption unmannerly varlet how dare you come dashing through this throng like a drunken ploughman the rider flung himself off the panting horse and knelt before his enraged master sire he said my news may perhaps plead for me the army of the emperor charles in provence is broken and in flight spain has met a crushing defeat and no foe insults the soil of france except by lying dead upon it now my good fellow cried the king with dancing eyes you are forgiven if you had ridden down half of my nobility the joyous news spread like wildfire, and cheer upon cheer rose to heaven like vocal flame to mark its advance. "'Brother!' cried the great king to his newly-arrived guest, placing an arm lovingly over his shoulder, his voice with suspicion of tremulousness about it. "'You stalwart Scots have always brought luck to our fair land of France. 
this glad news is the more welcome to me that you are here when i receive it and so the two like affectionate kinsmen walked together into the castle which although james did not then know it was to be his home for many months there was a dinner of state that evening so gay and on a scale so grand that james had little time or opportunity for reflection on his mission here indeed as talbot had truly said was the flower garden of the human race and the scottish king saw many a proud lady to whom probably he would have been delighted to bend the knee but his bride was not among the number the duchess de vendome explained to the king that her daughter was suffering from a slight illness and apart from this was anxious to greet her future husband in a conference more private than the present occasion afforded this was certainly reasonable enough and the important meeting took place the following afternoon mary of vendome might truly be called the pearl of france if whiteness of visage gave claim to that title the king found himself confronted by a drooping young woman whose stern mother gave her a support which was certainly needed her face was of the pallor of wax and never once during that fateful interview did she raise the heavy lids from her eyes that she had once been beautiful was undoubted but now her face was almost gaunt in its excessive thinness the death-like hue of her delicate skin the fact that she seemed scarce to breathe and that she never ventured to speak gave her suitor the impression that she more resembled one preparing for the tomb than a young girl anticipating her bridal she caught aside like one in a trance but the keen eyes of the king saw the tightening of her mother's firm hand on her wrist while she made the obeisance which etiquette demanded short as was their formal greeting it was too long for this anemic creature who would have sunk to the floor were it not for the clutch in which the determined mother held her even the king self-contained as he usually was found little to say beyond empty expressions of concern regarding her recent illness ending with a brief remark to the effect that he hoped she would soon recover from her indisposition but once the ordeal was over james was filled with a frenzy to be alone tortured as he was by an agony of mind which made any encounter with his fellows intolerable he strode through the seemingly interminable corridors of the great castle paying slight heed to his direction all doors opened before him and sentinels saluted as he passed at last not knowing where he was or how to get outside he said to one of the human statues who held a pipe tell me good fellow the quickest way to the outer air some spot where i can be entirely alone the guard saluting called a page whispered a word to him and the boy led the king to a door which gave access to a secluded garden enclosed on every side by high battlements yet nevertheless filled with great trees under which ran paths both straight and winding beside one wall lay the longest walk of this little park and up and down this gravelled way his hands clasped behind him the young king strode in more disturbance of mind than had ever before afflicted him oh god save me god save me he cried am i to be wedded to a ghost that woman is not even alive to say whether she is willing or no 
have i come to france to act the goal and rob the grave of its due saints in heaven help me what am i to do i cannot insult france yet i cannot chain my living body to that dead woman why is not talbot here he said he would overtake me at tours and yet is he not come the pearl of france said he the jewel of a toad's head say i my honour staked and to that unbreathing image of tallow is this my punishment do the sins of your youth thus overtake us and in such ghastly form bones of my ancestors i will not wed the grave though war and slaughter come of it and yet and yet my faith is plighted blindly unknowingly plighted why does not talbot come he knew what my emotions would be on seeing that denizen of another world and so warned me these muttered meditations were suddenly interrupted by a clear sweet voice from above Ecosse, scottish knight please rescue for me my handkerchief which i have alas let fall wrap a stone in it and throw it hither i beg of you the startled king looked up and beheld peering over at him from the battlements above one of the most piquant and pretty laughing faces he had ever seen innocent mischief sparkled in the luscious dark eyes which regarded him from a seemingly inaccessible perch a wealth of dark tousled hair made a midnight frame for a lovely countenance in the first flush of maidenly youth nothing could be more marked than the difference between the reality which thus came unexpectedly into view and his sombre vision of another there also sifted down to him from aloft whisperings that were evidently protests from persons unseen but the minx who was the cause of them merrily bade her counsellors be quiet she must get her handkerchief she said and the scot was the only one to recover it fluttering white from one of the lower branches was a dainty bit of filmy lace much too fragile a covering for the stone she had suggested the despair which enveloped the king was dispelled as the mist vanishes before the beaming sun he whipped out his thin rapier and deftly disentangled the light burden from the detaining branch it fluttered to his hand and was raised gallantly to his lips at which the girl laughed most joyfully as if this action were intensely humorous other faces peeped momentarily over the balustrade to be as quickly withdrawn when they saw the stranger looking up at them but the hussy herself whoever she was seemed troubled by no such timorousness resting her arms upon the stone balustrade with her chin above them her inviting eyes gazing mockingly on the man below the king placed the handkerchief in the bosom of his doublet thrust home the rapier in its scabbard grasped the lower branch of the tree and swung himself up on it with the agility of an acrobat now the insolence of those eyes was chased away by a look of alarm no no she cried stay where you are you are too bold scottish knight but she had to reckon with one who was as nimble wall-climber either up or down whose expertness in descent had often saved him from the consequences of too ambitious climbing 
The young man answered not a word, but made his way speedily up along branches until he stood at a level with the parapet. Across the chasm which divided him from the wall, he saw a broad platform railed round with a stone balustrade, this elevated floor forming an ample promenade that was nevertheless secluded because of the higher castle walls on every side, walls that were unpierced by any window. A door at the farther end of the platform gave access to the interior of the palace. A short distance back from the balustrade stood a group of some half-dozen very frightened women. But the first cause of all this commotion remained in the forefront of the assemblage, angry and defiant. "'How dare you, sir!' she cried. "'Go back! I command you!' Then, seeing he made no motion to obey her, but was measuring with his keen eye the distance between the bending limb on which he held his precarious position and the parapet, something more of a supplication came into her voice, and she continued, "'My good fellow, place the handkerchief on the point of your sword, and one of my women will reach for it. Be careful, I beg of you. That bow will break under your weight if you venture further.' the outreached arm and the sword will span the space madam said the king the sword's point is for my enemy on bended knee must i present a lady that which belongs to her end of chapter 11 part 1 read by lars rolander